If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On today's show, writer, actress, former blogger, and Rookie Mag founder, Tabby Gevinson. Gevinson talks about her early days in fashion, including starting her blog, Style Rookie, at 12 years old. On one hand, I was embraced and accepted by establishment fashion people. And then on the other hand, some were very vocally not into what I was doing. And in a way, I was like, oh, it, it was a blessing to be like, okay, I can tell that Vogue and Anna are not into this. Because if you don't feel loyalty to those people, your mind can go to more interesting places, I think. Why she told Ivanka Trump's sister-in-law, model Carly Kloss, to quote, give it a rest. With Carly's little dilemma, which would not be a dilemma if you really opposed Ivanka and Jared's politics, the kind of arguments I was seeing online in defense of her were people going like, but she has a girls coding organization, but she posts about progressive causes. Philanthropy and charity are not the same as challenging the systems that benefit you. And her infamous tenure at 300 Ashland, a high-rise in downtown Brooklyn that Gavinson was controversially being paid to advertise on social media. It wasn't like I, like I could have afforded to not do it, you know? It was more like my life will be easier if I do do this, but there's no such thing as a free apartment. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Hi, guys. What's up? It's Evan. Before we get into today's episode, I did want to issue a little bit of a correction. You're going to hear in a couple minutes me say that Anthony Stewart Head is the only male Buffy cast member to have come forward to acknowledge the statements made by Charisma Carpenter, Amber Benson, and Michelle Trachtenberg. That is, in fact, not correct. Um, On February 12th, this past Friday, James Marsters, who played the character of Spike, took to his social media to release the following statement. He said, quote, While I will always be honored to have played the character of Spike, the Buffy set was not without challenges. I do not support abuse of any kind, and I'm heartbroken to learn of the experiences of some of my cast. I send my love and support to all involved. End quote. And now to today's episode. Hey guys, what's up? It's Evan Ross Katz, and you are listening to Shut Up Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz, and I am joined once again by my producer, Matt, aka Stormageddon. Matt, let's pivot from the how are you, because I think we know how we all are, Um, (laughs) but how are you feeling? Uh, I like that change up. I am feeling okay. Uh, A little anxious. Uh, I feel like this week had some heavy manic energy on the internet. 
uh, lots of stuff going on, uh, lots of people saying stupid shit, some people saying important shit, uh, and it's just, it feels weird scrolling through Twitter and just like feeling overwhelmed by this information, but a lot of it is so important, you know, it just kind of feels like it's all coming at you at once. Yeah, I feel like with Twitter, because it's all like in concentrated into one place, you'll literally have like a friend posting a video of them getting railed and then you'll scroll down a little bit more and it's a congressperson speaking out about anti-Semitism. It's all there together. And I feel like, whereas in a newspaper, it gets like delineated by section. With Twitter, it's just the chaos is all confined to one space and then you're, you scroll past it and then it's just more beneath it. And sometimes it's absolutely worth your attention. Other times it's not. Other times, like, you need time to process it and come back to it. It's all there. Yeah, I think the the overwhelmingness of constant information, is it catches up with me every so often. I feel like I can ride the wave a lot of the time. I think podcasting has actually given me the edge on that because, like, I'm always looking for new stuff or interesting people or whatever. But, like, yeah, sometimes the wave hits you and you don't ride it or you wipe out. Um, how are you feeling, Evan? Mm. I realize how are you and how are you feeling are not like radically different questions, but no. it just, it has, well, it's a little, it has a little bit of a different feel to it. I am feeling, I'm feeling anxious about recording this and I'm feeling just an overwhelming amount of sadness um, because of some events that transpired this week. And in no way do I want to center myself within the conversation, but just with my proximity to so many of the people that have come out this week, I just you know, feel a great amount of sadness for them while also recognizing their courage and bravery. Um, so let's get into sort of what that is all about. Um, on Wednesday, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel actress Charisma Carpenter posted a lengthy statement to her social media accusing writer-director Joss Whedon of creating an abusive and cruel work environment. Her statement also declared her support of Justice League actor Ray Fisher, who triggered an investigation by Warner Media in 2020 after he accused Whedon of behaving abusively on that set. I want to read a bit of Charisma's statement while also imploring those listening to go on her Instagram and or Twitter and read it in full. I also want to encourage people to follow Charisma and double tap that post and show, if you feel compelled, show your support for her. I think it's important when people like Charisma have the bravery to come forward that they feel affirmed by not just their fans, but by people who who want equality, you know, who, who expect more out of these systems. And I don't just mean Hollywood. I mean out of just safety in the workplace in general. So the quote that I'm going to read says, Joss Whedon abused his power on numerous occasions while working on the sets of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. While he found his misconduct amusing, it only served to intensify my performance anxiety, disempower me, and alienate me from my peers. The disturbing incidents triggered a chronic physical condition from which I still suffer. It is with a beating, heavy heart that I say I coped in isolation and at times destructively. She continued, quote, Despite the harassment, a part of me still sought his validation. I made excuses for his behavior and repressed my own pain. I have even stated publicly at conventions that I'd work with him again. Only recently, after years of therapy and a wake-up call from the Time's Up and Me Too movements, did I understand the complexities of this demoralizing thinking. These memories and more have weighed on my soul like bricks for nearly half a decade. I wish I said something sooner. I wish I had the composure and courage all those years later, but I muted myself in shame and conditioned silence. As a single mother whose family's livelihood is dependent on my craft, I'm scared. Despite my fear and its impact on my future, I can no longer remain silent. This is overdue and necessary, 
it's time. Carpenter's comments lit the match, and within hours, her co-stars began weighing in. First was Amber Benson, who appeared on Buffy the Vampire Slayer for three seasons. She wrote, quote, Buffy was a toxic environment, and it starts at the top. Charisma is speaking truth, and I support her 100%. There was a lot of damage done during that time, and many of us are still processing it 20 years later. Then came Sarah Michelle Gellar, who took to Instagram writing, While I am proud to have my name associated with Buffy Summers, I don't want to be forever associated with the name Joss Whedon. I am more focused on raising my family and surviving a pandemic currently, so I will not be making any further statements at this time, but I stand with all survivors of abuse and am proud of them for speaking out. Then Michelle Trachtenberg, who played Buffy's younger sister for three seasons, took to Instagram. She reposted Sarah Michelle Gellar's post and added, Thank you, Sarah Michelle Gellar, for saying this. I am brave enough now as a 35-year-old woman to repost this because this must be known as a teenager with his not appropriate behavior, very not appropriate. So now people know what Joss did. This is the last comment I will make on this. There was a rule saying he was not allowed in a room alone with Michelle. The following day, Eliza Dushku, who appeared on Buffy in a recurring role for quite a few seasons and appeared on Angel, released a lengthy statement on Instagram directed at Carpenter. She wrote, quote, Cece, which is a name several of her co-stars had used when describing Carpenter to me in our interviews. She wrote, my heart aches for you, and I'm sorry you have held this for so long. Your post was powerful, painful, and painted a picture we'll collectively never unsee or unknow. I frequently think of the saying, we are as sick as our secrets. Our secrets indeed make and keep us sick. What I'm learning more and more, and have personally found most valuable, is that profound healing can only come from naming and disclosing what actually happened. The necessary first step, once someone's ready, to freeing ourselves from our secrets. Untold truths which have kept us isolated, ashamed, and held hostage. Neglecting to name the power, gender, sexual, racial, abuse epidemic in the entertainment industry, and for that matter, society in general, enables the abusers and only emboldens and ultimately fortifies abusive systems. May you and countless others feel the solidarity and connection you have likely missed for too long. From courage come change and hope. It starts and will end because of courageous truth-tellers like you. I admire, respect, and love you. Dushku, it should be noted, came forward in 2018 with her own allegations of sexual molestation against stunt coordinator Joel Kramer, who she worked with at the age of 12, Kramer was 35, on the set of True Lies. She wrote at the time, quote, whereas he was supposed to be my protector, he was my abuser. Anthony Stewarthead is the only male series lead to issue a statement or make any acknowledgement of the situation. Excuse me, I should correct that. Anthony Stewarthead is the only Buffy male series lead to issue a statement or make any acknowledgement of the situation. He appeared on a British talk show and said this, quote, you can probably see that I've been up most of the night. Just running through my memories thinking, what did I miss? This is not a man saying, I didn't see it, so it didn't happen. It's just, I can't. I'm gutted. I'm seriously gutted. One of my memories, my fondest memory, in fact, was that he was so empowering, not just in the words in the scripts, but in the family feel of the show. I'm really sad if people went through these experiences that they didn't, I was sort of like a father figure. I would hope that someone would come to me and say, I'm struggling. I just had a horrible conversation. Admittedly, the first post by Charisma was when she was working on Angel and I was long gone. But there are other posts subsequent that are making me think, how on earth did I not know this was going on? There were always ups and downs and highs and lows. End quote. The record must be reflected to note that Carpenter made it explicitly clear in her statement that this behavior took place on both sets. She said, quote, Joss Whedon abused his power on numerous occasions while working together on the sets of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. That's an unambiguous quote. 
Just think it's worth noting. J. August Richard is the only Angel cast member thus far to come forward publicly. He tweeted at Charisma stating, quote, sending you my love. I know the feelings of vulnerability and fear that comes with speaking your truth. As I said to you yesterday, I am here for you, however you need me. Carpenter responded, writing, quote, as I said on our call, many people are watching how my truth statement is received. When they see a positive, loving embrace from people like you, it creates space for their own stories to be heard. Thank you. Please know I'm inspired by you for speaking your heart, too. She is referring to uh, Richard coming out publicly as gay in April 2020. Several other actors affiliated with the show have made statements or expressed solidarity with Carpenter and the other victims, including Emma Caulfield and Claire Kramer. Late on Friday afternoon, Marty Noxon, who was the number two to Joss on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and served as showrunner for the last two seasons, weighed in, writing on Twitter, quote, I would like to validate what the women of Buffy are saying and support them in telling their story. They deserve to be heard. I understand where Charisma, Amber, Michelle, and all the women who have spoken out are coming from. End quote. And so that is, as of this recording, we're recording this on Saturday afternoon. Um, those are all of the statements that have come out publicly. I think it's important to note that there are a lot of conversations that are likely happening privately. Um, so I do think it's worth noting, and I have a hard, I, it's difficult, I think, to critique people's statements. I think mm -hmm. there's a desire to do it. I know I did it with Justin Timberlake's statement to Britney Spears. But I think that what makes that instance different is that so much of that conversation, the Britney and Justin and Janet of it all, which we can get into on a later podcast perhaps, happened in the public arena, whereas mm -hmm. this is all stuff that happened behind the scenes that is now entering the public arena. And so that's why I think it's it's important to have these statements come out publicly. I don't think it means because we have not seen a public post from someone that they do not feel a certain way or that they haven't reached out in private to the actors. Ultimately, it's not for the public to forgive or, or really even necessarily have an opinion about, though I know we, we will have one, myself included. I just think it's worth granting people the grace of the fact that, you know, this might, there are things happening that we are not privy to, despite the fact that we have now been made privy to um, this information. As a longtime fan of this show, and as someone working on a book ahead of the 25th anniversary of this show, I am I shared sentiments that have been echoed by others um, of feeling gutted. I think that we, fans of the show, have long heard rumors. I think when the Ray Fisher allegations came out, that did not feel... That felt familiar in a weird way. Familiar in the sense of it just didn't feel outside of what one could think of Joss. And, and this makes me think of a 2017 blog post that his ex-wife, Kai Cole, wrote for The Wrap in which she came out against Joss, talking about um, how he had cheated on her for 15 years, including during his time on Buffy, um, with fans of the show, with uh, co-workers. Uh, she didn't, you know, get into specifics beyond that, but basically saying that, like, his brand of feminism is toxic and that it is not real. And, and I think it's worth noting that this is affecting so many people because there's a mythologizing about Joss in the public, as I think there is with a lot of these creators of, of work as impactful as Buffy. But in the case of Joss, he is the man behind this feminist superhero. You know, mm -hmm. he created Buffy. I want to say Sarah Michelle Gellar is Buffy. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think that is worth 
underlining, but he did create this character. And so there's something just so deeply insidious about learning that the man, that not only was he this monster, but that he is a monster who created someone with the sole intent of fighting monsters. It, it's just, it's a lot to process. Um, and like I said, obviously there have been stories and rumors out there for some time, but I think that this is, you know, having multiple people from the show come forward in such rapid succession, it's heartbreaking, particularly with Michelle, um, just thinking of this underage young person on this set being... And, you know, she didn't get into specifics and it's not for us to really, um, you know, we'll take what she gives us in terms of our understanding. But it sounds like she was not made to feel safe at such a young age. And that is incredibly, incredibly disturbing. And I just want to recognize the bravery of all of these women for coming forward. Um, you know, it, 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 I, can't, I can't imagine how difficult it must be. And I'm glad to see that there seems to be so much public support, both from fellow cast members, um, and from the public at large. I do want to say that with regards to the book that I'm working on, I do go into this in great detail with Charisma and with Amber. We've had previous conversations about all of this. I have not yet talked to Michelle, and I don't know if this will tamper the conversation we were going to have in terms of I don't know if I will have access to her now because I understand if, as she said, I understand the desire to say what they've said and leave it at that. I think that's one of the tricky things in a situation like this is allowing people to say what they want to say and not feel like they have to add more to it. I, I imagine that one of Charisma's fears, Sarah's fears, those associated with the show now, it's like the legacy is going to have this cloud over it because of this man. And I think it's really important to celebrate the work that so many women, female writers, stunt coordinators, actresses, etc., contribute to this show. This show is bigger than Joss Whedon, but it it, it can't help but, you know, it, it changes things. And so I'm still kind of processing all of it and trying to decide how to move forward. Obviously, this was always going to be a part of the book. That that was always clear. But now it becomes a question of how much and also wanting to make sure this isn't my story to tell, right? This right. is this is these people's story. And I want to just make sure that it's like th their comfort is of the utmost importance. I think one of the great things about this book not coming out for a year is it gives time for uh, people to process this information. You know, one thing that I think is important to also understand is just like not everybody on this set might have known everything. There are things that people might be finding out now in real time that make them look back at a certain incident that they saw that they thought looked a certain way but didn't think anything of it. And now knowing what they know, they might see things differently. I just think it's important to remember that we weren't there. And I also think it's important to remember that I guess one thing I'm learning about this in real time is just I keep thinking about the PTSD element that both Charisma mentioned in her statement and Kai Cole had mentioned in her uh, her blog post on The Wrap several years later. And just the idea that though these incidents might have happened 15, 20, 25 years ago, not only can they stay with you, but you can be re-traumatized. And 
I want to make sure that we, both me writing this book, but just fans of the show in general, are as respectful to these women as possible. We support them. We make them feel loved. And more than anything, I want to champion their continued professional lives. I know that by coming forward with allegations like this, it absolutely can have an effect on Charisma's career. Um, And she even feels as though it has had an effect on her career. And I'm not saying that because I think that, I'm saying that because she said that. And so, I, I don't know. I hope that more people will come forward to offer their support privately or or publicly. I guess what I don't know about all of this is like where where something like this lands because it's just both something from so long ago and yet it's all happening right now from a lot of different voices in real time and uh that's i think where i'm at with it right now but i just uh i like the the journalist in me is like yeah we have to like just you know kind of want to go through all the statements and all that stuff but the fan in me i feel this especially when it comes to charisma because i know her the best i just love her so much and Mm -hmm. i want peace for her and so and we're not friends i don't want to you know I, i know her from you know, from doing this podcast and from, you know, we keep in touch over email and whatnot, but I'm, I'm, I'm a fan, you know, I'm not a friend, right. but, um, I just feel for her a lot. And, and I, and that, that's where I'm at with it. Where are you at with it? I know that you are a fan of Buffy as well. So, yeah, it's funny. It's, it's funny. That's probably the worst phrase to use, but it's so common in the vernacular when trying to talk about things that are strange. So I've been a fan of Joss Whedon's work for a long time. You know, Buffy, of course, like anybody else, but it bleeds even further than that for me with the Marvel movies. One of Mm. my favorite Marvel movies is The Avengers, the culminating movie that brought those heroes together. He directed. Of course, you know, I have my hit or miss with Justice League as a movie itself, but he was a big part of that, especially after Zack Snyder had to step down for unfortunate events, you know, and... You know, he's gone on to do Age of Ultron and other movies and worked in other spaces. So, like, it reaches even beyond Buffy for me. But, like, I'm I'm like you. I'm gutted. You know, when any when anything like this comes up, I am always gutted. I'm rarely surprised, you know? And you were mentioning that earlier. Like, that when Joss Whedon... One of the big things to come out of Age of Ultron is there's a storyline when we're learning more about Black Widow that she is no longer allowed to have children. Things were done to her when she was younger and be trained to become an assassin. And she refers to herself as a monster because she can't have children. She compares herself to the Hulk, who is physically a monster. And I remember so many people being upset by this. And I didn't understand it at first, but I understand it now. Like, this idea that because... A woman can't have kids. She's a monster. It's a thinly veiled way of boiling down femininity to a very specific thing that doesn't necessarily make you a woman because you don't have to have children to be a woman. It's just all of that stuff. And so, you know, people talking about how they're disappointed because he was so feminist seemingly when making and creating Buffy, things like this that came along later, it's like maybe he's not as forward-thinking or feminist as we thought, you know, because you could have conveyed how Black Widow hated herself without calling her a monster or because of that calling herself a monster. But I'm, I'm in line with all the things you've said. I think that, you know, ultimately my heart aches. I think it's curious that a lot of the male stars haven't said anything. But again, we don't know what conversations are happening behind the scenes, what they actually know, what they 
did or didn't know. You know, I've seen many of these actors be allies in other spaces. Um, you know, especially David Boreanaz and Seth Green have been allies in other spaces. So I'm curious if they'll say something, but we don't know. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, like, again, I don't want to, like, be reading into things too much, but but in my conversations with Charisma, take David, for instance, she's had very nice things to say about David. And even mm-hmm. on his most recent Instagram post, I saw that, you know, Charisma both follows David and likes his post. And my sense would be, and again, I'm just saying this from, like, the person who is scrolling through Instagram, I don't think, if if you didn't like a person, I don't think you would be following them and liking their post. Um, So, but actually this makes me think about Christmas comment about how she was at conventions saying that she would work with Joss again. So actually I kind of, you just don't know actually is my takeaway from it. You just don't know. And so that, in that sense, I do think there is value in the public statement. I think for a lot of us, we're just longing to hear men come out and support these women yeah it's not it's not an expectation it's a desire i know though like for me the silence is is pretty deafening yeah and i will be so i have already done interviews so buffy has six male cast members throughout the seven Mm -hmm. years i've done interviews with three of the six men so far so i've interviewed nicholas brendan james marsters and mark blukas all three of whom had pretty favorable things to say about Joss Whedon. I will be going back and uh, attempting to re-interview them um, now. I think that's one of the the pieces of this that I can actively do is seek right. out comment. That is something that's really important for me, especially just moving forward in any of the men that I talk to. But I just... Uh, I I just feel so much for Charisma. And, and it. I went back recently and I listened to our interview from 2020 with Charisma. And I just remember thinking afterwards, I was like, gosh, she really didn't talk much about Buffy, you know, like, and she just Mm -hmm. said she never watched the show. And I remember thinking that was odd, but also I've learned over time that like a lot of actors don't watch their work. That's been like one through line with all of these Buffy interviews is like, no one has seen Buffy. (laughs) And part of me at the time was like, that's crazy. Like you should watch Buffy. And now I'm kind of like, well, you know what? Maybe they're not watching it because the memory is that perhaps it stirs up in them. So I want to end this conversation by noting, first of all, the conversation is continuing to unravel. I have received word um, from a cast member over email this morning saying that he will be making a statement later today. Again, this is recorded on Saturday. And I expect more to happen in this story. I don't know what that is. um, But I hope, I don't know what justice looks like in a situation like this. I don't. But again, I point to the idea of seeing hundreds of thousands of likes on Charisma's post and the retweets and the comments of support. That to me feels like not again, it's not justice that it feels like, but it feels it feels like the right thing that people like us can do in a situation like this in order to make her feel seen and heard and uh, make her feel. Like there's a, that that we are some sort of safety net for her, you know, us yeah. fans who don't even who don't even know her, but 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 know her from this character that she shared yeah. with us. And so I want to end things uh, by actually playing a, a clip from our 2020 interview with her because I think that 
she reveals a lot in that interview in a little bit more coded language, but she speaks to much of what is said in the most recent statement. But also I want you to hear, hear her say it. You know, I've been yeah. thinking a lot about the difference between, you know, seeing a statement on, on something like Instagram and Twitter and just hearing or, or, or uh, you know, seeing it come from the person. And I'm not saying everyone wants to, to make the statement in anything other than text form, but I know that reading the statement from Charisma was incredibly powerful. Hearing these words too was powerful and just in a different way. But I want people to hear her story from her. I learned later that I was the lowest paid actress in primetime television. And I don't know if that's bad agenting or if that is just like the machine that is, you're not enough, you're not good enough, you create these issues, you have anxiety, you, you know, have to have a coach on set. You know, I was in a sense, and I'm not disagreeing on this, that I was challenging in those areas, but I was always made to feel though that I was also very worth it. So it was always sort of like this, oh my God, you're this huge talent and you know we want to do everything to make it possible for you to be your best and America loves you and you're awesome. And then at the same time, when it came time to talk about my paycheck, it was like, you're a problem. You know, you cost us this, you cost... And so it was always like this building up to knock you down. You know, it was always something like that going on. And it was very disruptive to me as an artist, as you know, a person. And then now as a new mother, you know, I had a lot to traverse and navigate as skillfully as possible. But back in the 90s, you really didn't necessarily have a lot of voice. You kind of as a woman don't even (laughs) in this administration, if it's not made clear, like I'm, I still feel like, yes, there is progression in the movement of women's right to work, women's right to have fair pay and all of these things. There's been tremendous exposure of the undermining that takes place by men in powerful positions where they make you feel like you're extra. Men can be a handful also and be fucking extras and doing drugs on the weekend and like showing up fucked up or whatever the case may be, you are still less than. And I still feel like, yes, there's been progress, but we're not there yet. We're just not there yet. And it was a lot. It was a lot to manage at the time. I do my best. I have done my best to look at my part in all of that, to see things from a production point of view. And I was not perfect. And I think I was doing my best to cope under a tremendous amount of duress. Having a baby should not equate to not having a job the following year. Lots of productions did deal with it. And Aaron Spelling was sued for firing someone. That had happened. I knew what I was sitting on could be potentially explosive, but I I felt like I had no agency. There was just nothing I could do about it. Do you feel like for an actress today that was your age at the time, do you feel like she would have and I, I understand this is hypothetical, but do you think that given the shift in climate, and I don't know how affected that shift is, you would know a lot better than I would. Do you think that an actress today would have those same difficulties in dealing with a situation like that? I think no matter what job you have in the workplace, every woman faces that unspoken 
reality that there are going to be, you're going to pay. You're going to pay for intrinsically just being a woman, (laughs) you know, just like having a reproductive system and to be able to have a baby is a problem. I am a very talented person, but I also have a very strong work ethic. And I think too, that somehow wasn't enough to sustain my job. And with that, from one powerful woman to another, we turn things over to our interview with Tavi Gevinson. Let's do it. She is a writer and actress, former magazine editor, and most recently, a podcast host. In 2008, at the age of 12, she started to come to prominence with her fashion blog, Style Ricky. In an era where blogs were fresh and avant-garde, she stood out for her age, her considered perspective, and her prose. The fashion world took notice, and as a preteen, she jet-setted from her hometown of Chicago to New York Fashion Week and Paris Fashion Week. In December 2009, at 13, she was writing articles for Harper's Bazaar, something I just did for the first time at 31. In 2011, at the age of 15, she founded Rookie Magazine. The website was unique not only for its focus on issues impacting teen girls, but for having bylines largely consisting of teen girls. Among my favorite columns was one called Ask a Grown Man, Ask a Grown Woman, in which adult celebrities, or non-terribles as they were referred to, answered questions submitted by teen readers. I implore people to look up Regina Spector's Ask a Woman feature. That magazine eventually folded in 2018. In a six-page editor's note, she explained that the site was shutting down because, quote, digital media has become an increasingly difficult business, and Rookie, in its current form, is no longer financially sustainable. But, she noted, quote, it is my decision to not do the things that might make it financially sustainable, like selling it to new owners, taking money from investors, or asking readers for donations or subscriptions. More on that in a bit. As an actress, she appeared on The Simpsons, Scream Queens, Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone, and will appear in the currently in-production Gossip Girl reboot. In 2015, she made her Broadway debut in a revival of Kenneth Lonergan's This Is Our Youth. I still have my signed playbill somewhere. The following year, she played Mary Warren in Eva Von Hove's 2016 production of The Crucible. She was in rehearsal to appear as Lynette Squeaky Fromm in Classic Stage Company's revival of Stephen Sondheim's Assassins before the pandemic shut down production in 2020. Her new podcast, Life Skills, just launched in January via Audible. All that, and I still feel like we've only skimmed the surface, but I don't want to waste another minute. She is one of the smartest, most reverent, most curious, most creative, most inspiring, and to quote Allison Janney in Drop Dead Gorgeous, most smartest. It is an honor to be able to spend this time with the magnificent Tavi Gebbinson. Oh my gosh, that was so impressive. Wow. I want to start with the most important question I will ask. Do you still have the black dress mailed to you by Courtney Love mentioned in a 2011 New York Times profile about you? Yes, I think it's in my basement or my parents' basement. If it's not, then I made a huge mistake at some point in my life, one of many. And yeah, that would be devastating. I do remember it smelled, it had such a specific, very perfumey smell. Mm. And how did that dress come into your possession? Courtney Love just sent you a dress? So I had written about how important her music was to me and also just her as a figure, like her persona. And I remember she tweeted about my blog once and then at some point emailed me. I tried to find this email so many times. I hope I didn't imagine it, but sent me like a long email 
it was like, I want to send you some stuff. She was starting to sell a lot of her clothes on eBay. And she was like, I have stuff I want to send you. And I remember she also like DM'd me once and was like, it's Courtney. Here's my number. Call me. And I was talking to her on the phone while pacing around my bedroom where a whole shelf in my bookcase was a shrine to her. I had like magazine covers of hers and whole 45s and cassettes and whole barrettes and things I'd used to decorate it, a necklace, uh, a whole necklace. And I remember just like touching it while talking to her and feeling absolutely nuts. But there's a really fun coda to my Courtney Love relationship. Please tell me. (laughs) Okay, this is, I don't know if I'm ready to share this, but I feel like it's too good not to. Okay, this summer, I I lightly trolled Derek Blasberg on Instagram and someone replied in his defense and was sort of like, what about you and your connection to Anna Wintour? Which I was like, um. And then someone told me the username, it was a private account, was the same username Courtney would use to troll whole comment sections, whole message boards back in the day. And they were convinced it was her. (laughs) Wow. Whoa. Isn't that This would track though, because isn't, I mean, Derek and Courtney are friends. I assume so. I was like, he must have something on you. Wow. Do you still have her number? I feel like we need like you to call her up and like get this, get the the scoop on this because that's crazy. I know. I pr- I think I probably do have some numbers saved. <laughs> I don't know if it still works. I've also run into her a couple of times. Um, I mean, now, you know, not since the pandemic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I used to fall asleep to a cassette of Live Through This next to my head, like, Ugh, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, thank God we have celebrities with burner accounts defending Derek Blasberg because let me just tell you, that is certainly worthy of a celebrity or anyone's time. So you grew up watching Daria, Twin Peaks, and The Virgin Suicides, which are all media that I think it's fair to say weren't made for teens. Hmm. And I relate to that so much because for me, that was Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Cruel Intentions, which are titles that I revisit in adulthood now. And I just... Marvel at wondering what I was taking away from them at the time because I clearly was not comprehending a lot of what was going on on screen, but I believed I was at the time. I'm curious if you've gone back and revisited any of those titles or significant ones from your youth in adulthood and had either a completely different reaction to them or just started to understand them on a frequency that perhaps at the time you weren't, or maybe you were all along. Such a good question. Definitely, I liked a lot of movies and shows that were maybe about teenagers, but as you said, not for teenagers. Like, I think Freaks and Geeks was intended for adults. Virgin Suicides is not like a teen movie, even though there are teenagers in it. I haven't watched a lot of those since then. I think it would be very emotional. I have watched Virgin Suicides since then. And it's probably one of the movies I've seen most in my life because I watched it so much in high school. And definitely I take away different things from it now. I mean, it's so much 
clearer to me now that it is from the guy's points of view. You know, it's narrated by an adult man looking back on these, his memory of these girls he fantasized about when he was younger. So even though as a teenager, I think I was like Sofia Coppola, female writer director, and like this kind of girlhood she was capturing was something I either identified with or aspired to, like just all of the sisters lying around saying nothing. <laughs> but watching it now, I'm it's definitely like, and this isn't a flaw of the movie. Like, I think it's intentional. I think these are the terms of the movie. But watching it now, I'm like, oh, this isn't, this is on one hand, the girls are much more human in the movie than they are in the book. But on the other hand, like it is about male desire. And there are also just a lot of things that now, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but looking back, I'm like, oh, this is also about whiteness, you know, a mm -hmm. lot of the teen genre. Yeah, completely. I've had a similar experience in rewatching Buffy for my book and realizing that this great feminist superhero was created by a man, a quite sometimes problematic man and reconciling that idea of a man behind a great woman and how many great works of art we have that exist through that I think now, I know for me, I can go back and watch with that perspective and start to see little nuances that are like, I see the, the joss in the character of Buffy, which makes it resonate differently. You had the great privilege of not only attending your first Chanel runway show at 13 years old, but meeting and chatting it up with Carl Lagerfeld. And I haven't talked to a lot of people who have met the great Carl Lagerfeld. What was your first impression of him? I was so scared. I mean, I, I was always sort of bracing myself for people like that to, you know, people of that stature to perhaps be a little snide or cold or you know, I had had some encounters like that. And also there was so much uh, anti-blogger sentiment at the time among like the more established, extremely established old school fashion people. So, and I remember reading interviews with him where he was like, no, I don't read the internet. I read books. Um, so I just was sort of not sure how it would go, but I want to say I was like, I mean, I definitely wouldn't have gone up to him myself. I want to say I was sort of ushered over by some Chanel PR person who must have been, I don't know, he must have had some kind of context. But what I remember about him was that he said to a reporter while I was there that I was smart because I was dyeing my hair gray and everyone else was obsessed with looking young. And he was like, but Tavi wants her hair to be gray like mine or something like that. So that was sort of special. Lagerfeld to me crystallizes so much of the fashion industry, problematic greatness. Mm -hmm. He's undoubtedly one of the most talented designers to ever live. And yet he was, for lack of a better word, an asshole. Jamila Jamil memorably tweeted after his death in 2019, quote, a ruthless, fat phobic misogynist shouldn't be posted all over the internet as a saint gone too soon. Model and Lagerfeld muse Cara Delevingne then jumped in to defend him. And I remember in that moment 
thinking about the Me Too movement and Karl Lagerfeld's condemnation of the Me Too movement and feeling a unique kind of cringe. In, I understood Kara's point of view and I also understood Jamila's point of view. How do you reconcile complex figures like Karl Lagerfeld? Because I think this industry is full of more Karls than less Karls. For sure. I mean, I'm writing about this right now. Like I have so many thoughts about it, but I think that the impulse with these individual figures is always to, at first, to treat them like exceptions. Right now it's, I guess, happening with the allegations against Alexander Wang. And while I understand that it is, I both think that it is necessary to examine someone's legacy, the good and the bad and the problematic and the fat phobic and the misogynistic and the racist, like you have to look at all of that. And I also think that in a way, sometimes, at least on the internet, in the attempt to use those stories as teaching moments or those figures as teaching moments or as symbolic of you know, much larger forces of misogyny and racism, et cetera. I sometimes feel like the masses can get overly enamored with stories of individuals when these issues are also systemic. I also think there's something kind of perverse that happens where, I mean, now I'm thinking of the Wang like stories where the responses can be so... Um, Sometimes I almost feel like people fetishize <laughs> other people's trauma at the hands of famous people. Like I was looking at those comments on Diet Prada because someone tagged me and was like, I wonder if Tavi has any stories. And I was like, first of all, this is such a toxic environment. I would never be like, yes, thank you for asking if I have any trauma. Let me tell you right now. But like, second of all, like the number of people who are like, I met him once and I could just tell, like there's something going on, the force of celebrity and people's desire to have proximity to scandal and to power is also at play. Yeah, so I guess when I think about these figures, I'm sort of thinking about all of it, like also the way that people respond. I mean, even going back to what you were saying about Buffy and Joss Whedon, like there are so many women I've admired who their careers were shaped by men who were abusive. Tina Turner, Ronnie Spector, or, and then even performances like Mariel Hemingway in Manhattan. She's playing a disgusting fantasy, a figment of Woody Allen's imagination, but her performance is really good. So like, I'm constantly thinking about what it means. And in my own life, like you are, I have been shaped by people and men who were abusive. Like that is the best word for it. And so sometimes when people are like, oh, is it still okay to like something? I feel like A, what they're asking is like, is it socially acceptable? Which I don't think is the same thing as like, can you personally enjoy something? Um, which I don't judge. And B, I also think like, I wonder if this person has maybe not had to reconcile some of these things before in their own life. That might be judgmental of me. Maybe, you know, someone has had very traumatic experiences and their journey is like that they are using these stories to understand that. But 
yeah, I just feel like we're all constantly like working out our own traumas through stories about famous people. Completely. I mean, this makes me think a lot about Diane Keaton, you know, someone with proximity to trauma. And I posted, someone did a TikTok video where they were impersonating Diane and, and Bet and Goldie in First Wives Club. And I reposted it and someone responded and they were like, you know that Diane Keaton came down in defense of Woody Allen several years ago. And I was like, I did know that. I think that that's terrible. And I still love Diane Keaton's performance in The First Wives Club. And I still like Diane Keaton. And I think that all of those things can be true. And specifically with what you're speaking about, this obsession with celebrity, if you, and, we, and you know, we've had this conversation on the podcast before. It's yep. like, it's, if you invest in these celebrities enough, they're gonna let you down. <laughs> Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Let's talk about your bat mitzvah. <laughs> A big theme on this podcast with the Jewish guests that we have is mm-hmm. sort of learning about their Jewish identity and the ways in which that their Judaism has come up in their lives. And I think that for many of us, myself included, the bar and bat mitzvah is a huge touchstone of our Jewish identity. What do you remember about your bat mitzvah? Oh my gosh. Didn't know that was coming. I'm so happy you asked. I remember, well, okay. We had the party in like the, I forget what it was called, the community hall or like some kind of big room that was right adjacent to the sanctuary where like on the high holidays, they would like open the divider between the two to make room. And I remember my mom made these like tissue paper flowers that were everywhere. Basically, it was like, if you were rich, if your family was rich, you had a theme. That was the understanding uh, in my town and like at Hebrew school. But like, I remember a girl at Hebrew school asking me what my theme was. And I thought she meant like what my Torah portion was about. (laughs) So (laughs) amazing. I was like, um, like ritual sacrifice and I don't know, dead goats and blood and drinking blood. I don't know. Um, And she looked horrified. Yeah, totally. That's amazing. (laughs) Do you look back on your bat mitzvah as a, as a positive experience in your life? Is it something you, you remember fondly? Yes, I do. I remember wanting to be like too cool for school and being like, 
I remember being like, oh, what's the point of like having a big party where you invite all these people who you're not going to be friends with in two years anyway. But I also, I remember once it was happening, I was like, okay, this is kind of cool. I laugh when you say that because I felt the same way. And it's funny that you mentioned the theme thing because I remember my theme. It was Looney Tunes. We had these terrible off-brand foam standees of Looney Tunes characters. And my favorite was the Tasmanian Devil, which I had for years in my loft at my parents' place, like in this tiny bedroom that I had, just kept it for no reason. It wasn't even on display. No, by the way, I'm not even sure that it's like, I'm still not clear on like if we could have afforded a theme, a themed party, or if that was what I was told so that it would, you know, for convenience and to be economical. But I remember being like, oh, like so-and-so had hers at the Adler Planetarium. And I hear they had a donut conveyor belt. Like, it was her. all about like, yeah, could, like how could you sort of pull out all the stops? I remember for mine, we ordered two Sarah Michelle Gellar stand-up dolls from Japan and I still have them both. And one of them is in my apartment in New York City, but that was like Amazing. the big spend for us was like, you know, we got these cardboard cutouts and they're all the way from Japan. And yeah, <sighs> but we said it, it was a Hollywood theme, but Hollywood in through the lens of me was Sarah Michelle Gellar because she was at the epicenter <laughs> of Hollywood as she should be. I want to revisit a July 2008 article that was written in New York Magazine to get your perspective on it nearly 13 years later, which coincidentally is about the midpoint of your life. It's one of those articles that would never pass in 2021, a signifier of a time not too long gone, but seemingly archaic. It reads, quote, we're not sure if a 12-year-old is actually doing all this or if she's getting some help from a mom or older sister. Some of the photos of her were definitely not self-shot. We're also not sure if we think she's the best thing since the Olsen twins, like so many other fashion bloggers. What do you think? Are you a rabbit tabby fan? Or do you find all this fuss rather, well, irritating? Do chime in below in the comments, end quote. This created quite a brouhaha at the time. I remember many people were outraged by the accusation and the general tone of the piece. How did you feel about it then? And how do you feel about it now? It was a snarkier time for sure. Mm. I think, I know that at the time it felt horrible because I was literally 12. Like I remember crying a lot. Like that would suck if you were 12. But then there were also like good things that came out of it. Like there was a fashion blog I was sort of aware of called Geometric Sleep. And then the woman who wrote it, Laya, emailed me and said like, that thing is bullshit. Like, don't listen to them. And we became, I mean, we're friends. We were like internet friends and now we're like real life friends and have been for over 10 years now. Yeah, so looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, I've really experienced like the worst of the internet and the best. Like Rookie was so, and a lot of the parts the parts of fashion blogging were like, there was just this pure love and community and like really feeling, you know, connected to people and really needing that lifeline. I mean, my thoughts on it now, it's hard to take myself out of it and try to judge it in any way but like I would bet that even like the woman who wrote it would disown it now you know like (laughs) I was talking to my friend about how um yeah how it used to be more socially acceptable to be like mean about kids on the internet 
And she no. was like, you walked so Baron Trump could run. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not not true. <laughs> I mean, thank God. And thank God for that. And thank God. <laughs> Tell me this, though. You know, you mentioned sort of like the community that that Style Rookie fostered. And, and I do think that there it was just this great moment in time before the idea, even the term blog was as ubiquitous. But there's an eye-rolliness about the term blog now that it sounds like existed in the very beginning when you were doing it, when you're approaching these Carl Lagerfelds of the world, then went away and then cycled as, because everything is cyclical, into where it is where it is now. You know, it reminds me of like, there was a time when people used to ask, when you were doing a feature for a magazine, it was like print or digital. And mm -hmm. nowadays it's sort of like the understanding that digital is the same degree of real estate that print is, but there was a long time when you would get denied access because you were not print. When you were in the thick of it and sort of establishing this thing that was blog, what gave you the understanding or the, the knowledge to know that this was a medium that you believed had not only legs, but had legitimacy before it was cool to do it? I did not feel very legitimate. So I don't know. I mean, it was both. Like on one hand, I was like, the world isn't a meritocracy. Fashion is full of people who are just there because of who they are and who their family is and blah, blah, blah. I bet they all had themed bat mitzvah parties. And then like, <laughs> on the other hand, I also totally felt, you know, sort of aware that it was other people's feelings about blogs that made me feel this way. But I did feel like embarrassed to be, like, I remember when I did This Is Our Youth, with Kieran Culkin and Michael Sarah, I didn't know how much they knew about my career. And I remember when we started doing press, the three of us together and like journalists would ask me, I would be like, please don't say the word blog. Like, because people, I just thought like people think of like Perez Hilton or something. Like I was like, right. I don't want them yeah. to think I'm like a, snarky I don't know so I did have weird shame about it too hmm. tell me this one thing I grapple with a lot is proximity I become internet friends with a celebrity who I once criticized and then <laughs> I feel a little bit more trepidatious about critiquing them once they've been imbued with some kind of humanity for me when you were in your teens and began meeting and sometimes hobnobbing with figures in fashion and other prominent celebrities, did it change your perspective at all going from being an outsider to something of an insider? Oh, I mean, I think about this all the time, in part because of what we were talking about earlier, where you're like, the, the, these problems in the, these industries are so much deeper than just the examples of like famous people who are abusive. Like, it's not even that like the practice of uh, abuse of many stripes has been like so normalized in uh, Hollywood, et cetera, fashion, et cetera. But it's also that like, there are so many inequities. That's definitely what the rookie fundraising process was like, was figuring out like, okay, how much can I stomach meeting with a, an investor who from his Twitter seems like a Republican, you know, like, 
Yeah, I think that ex the fundraising experience definitely made a lot of those questions much more explicit for me. Because as an actor, mm -hmm. like you're not really in a position, some would say maybe you are, but you're just a lot more at the mercy of like people hiring you. So you don't get to be, or maybe you can be, <laughs> and I'm being soft on myself, but like choosy about working with people who's like, behavior you totally co-sign and then I also think that I've definitely noticed that I think the less loyalty you have to powerful figures the more psychic freedom you have as an artist or that's what I think for me what's tricky is like you may not have as much freedom as you would if you were to take the opportunities that could come with certain relationships. But I think that, I don't know, like I was just listening to a Fran Leibowitz interview where she was saying like, once you have a more comfortable life or great culture, great writing comes from people who are able to step outside and comment on what's happening and observe it. And if you have a more comfortable life, you may, or if you come more comfortable, you may lose that perspective and it made me think like, on one hand, I was embraced and accepted by establishment fashion people. And then on the other hand, some were very vocally not into what I was doing. And in a way I was like, oh, it, it was a blessing to be like, okay, I can tell that Vogue and Anna are not into this because if you are not behold, if you don't feel loyalty to those people, your mind can go to more interesting places, I think, at least as a writer, like if, but if you're invested in believing in the goodness of the establishment, it's almost like I may be totally butchering this, but Hannah Arendt talked about like a thought disorder being like, you can only have thoughts in so far as you are not questioning or challenging your own comfort and position in the world. And I think like with Rookie, I was going to potentially be relying on relationships with investors that did require kind of rationalizing or muting parts of my brain that were like, wait, but I don't want to be beholden to this person. Right. And I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad everything happened the way it did because writing is literally easier now. Like the things I want to think about are easier to think about. Yeah, does all of that make sense? Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. And actually, one thing I find interesting about all of this is the social media component, because a lot of that feeling of being beholden to these institutions, I think social media has helped to shake up because mm -hmm. I think figures like Anna, who you mentioned, because it's a lot more popular on Twitter to dunk on Anna and to dunk on Vogue, I actually think it gives people more freedom of perspective to look at an institution like Vogue that previously kind of never got questioned. For instance, this lack of plus size models or models of color or models of different abilities being on the cover, the lack of that was never really questioned to the expanse that it is now thanks to places like Twitter and people like that who didn't look at a Vogue with the esteem that a lot of fashion establishment did were able to say, it's bullshit that any institution has lack of inclusion, Vogue or otherwise. We're not right. putting this institution on a pedestal. So I think that's one of the benefits. Before I get into more about the investor thing, I want to ask about the Crucible. 
because I think that that's such an interesting production, which I did see. And I want to ask about it because I find it notable that you have this incredibly famous body of work from this incredibly famous American playwright being interpreted by this incredibly famous Belgian director. And then on top of that, you have a cast, an all-star cast, you know, comprised. I mean, honestly, like it's just what an incredible cast. It feels like a recipe for great success or an incredible disaster and nothing in between. What was the experience like of The Crucible and was it made easier at all by not having the spotlight so on you? Ooh, I mean, it's funny to say that because in some ways, like it's easier to be in a good play than a bad play because everything is set up for you to succeed. And then in other ways, it's like harder because you're so intimidated by everyone around you and the prestige and the expectations that like I was definitely really hard on myself throughout that whole process when you do a show for I think we rehearsed it for a month and then performed it for five so it changed a lot I remember like overall feeling like so inspired and so obsessed with that show I mean I still love that play and so into like the research and my castmates and seeing what everyone would do every night and but at the same time I was also like kind of hurting myself because I hadn't yet learned I had to learn towards the end of the run like how to protect my voice my body my feelings like how to do it without actually really thinking you need to feel every nook of everything you're saying and like really be depressed and This Is Our Youth was for me about learning how to actually feel it and respond and be authentic, react in the moment and be authentic and not overthink. And then I remember with The Crucible, like Jim Norton, who was maybe 80 at the time, was like, oh, it sucks because you learn how to be all real and they tell you it's important to be real, but then you do a show like this and you have to learn how to just act (laughs) because if not, you'll hurt yourself. So it was really challenging. And also Evo was so trusting and he didn't—he doesn't like doing the thing some directors do where they'll be like, oh, what you just did was perfect because that makes a lot of actors self-conscious. But as a result, there was so much that I didn't know he liked that I lost over the course of the run. And then like he'd come back and watch it or the vocal coach would watch it or the stage manager would watch it and be like, you've gone way off track. And that was, it was just a doozy. Like, I just wish I'd asked more questions, honestly. Matt has a question for you that I'm going to hand it over to him now. I do. Very briefly, I just want to say This Is Our Youth was transformative. I saw it when it was on and you were phenomenal. The whole cast was phenomenal. It's one of my favorite shows I've ever gotten to see. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you so much. That's so nice. And I went into it not knowing a lot about it. So that just made it hit me more like a truck. And so... I just, I I had to put that out there before I asked my question, which is, it's clear that there's no sign of you slowing down and you are a woman of so many incredible talents, being a writer, an actress, magazine editor, now a podcast host. What is one skill that you'd say is the most transferable between all of them? Wow, that's a really good question. Writing is like, you get everything out and then editing is going through and making decisions about, you know, composition and aesthetics and whatever. 
And then like acting is sort of the inverse, I think for me, like you rehearse and you do all the kind of intellectual stuff and then you try to be free and let yourself go. So I think there are transferable techniques across those two things for me. I, th I think it really is just like whatever you need to do in order to get yourself to work. <laughs> um, if it is the kind of thing like writing that's like on your own time and also what you need to do in order to be like less afraid of whatever it is you're doing to give a more specific example. Like for me, it doesn't help me to be like precious and feel like I need to live in isolation. Like backstage, I'm constantly talking to people and need to feel casual and like I'm having a good time. And while I'm writing, I, I mean, I don't really like distractions, but I'm constantly, you know, texting and emailing with friends and like in conversation with them. So I think everyone's just different, but I do think you can sort of find something that works with one thing and it can weirdly work in another medium or what have you. It sounds like the through line though is like, also like that connection to other people. It's mm -hmm. like this idea of like, if you're backstage talking to other actors, if you're writing, stopping for a second and texting with a friend, it's just this idea of like staying connected to the world outside of the work. I think having community has always been really important to me because Rookie folded over two years ago now, but clearly I have <laughs> been using the internet to since then to do things that can give me that feeling again like this mm -hmm. um audible show or like we did a my friend who took photos for rookie savannah ogburn we did like a rookie print sale in the fall that was a fundraiser and those were just sort of ways for me to isolate the parts of it that i most missed and just do those without having to also like run a business totally Let's talk about our friend, Carly Kloss. And I actually think this connects to Rookie. I think it'll all come full circle. So you made headlines after responding to a recent Carly Kloss tweet that read, quote, accepting the results of a legitimate democratic election is patriotic. Refusing to do so and inciting violence is anti-American, end quote. When one person urged her to share that statement with Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, her brother and sister-in-law, her response was simply, quote, I've tried. <laughs> you took to your Instagram story to respond to this saying, and I'll pair a quote, but just one section. What Carly Kloss means to say is, I have no real interest in using my political power so much as maintaining a watery feminist liberal brand while protecting my ties to the Trumps and Kushners and vaguely claiming I've tried to change their minds. I've had four plus years to be explicit and specific about the threats my in-laws pose. Instead, I've chosen to help legitimize their bigotry by branding us as simply having different political views. You elaborated on this in a recent interview with Teen Vogue saying, quote, because I know she's listening because she restricted me on Instagram. I also talk about it because if she incorporates progressive causes into her brand, I think this stuff should be a part of her brand too. But mostly I want people to understand that by saying who doesn't agree with their family about politics, when that means two senior advisors to Trump, she makes Jared and Ivanka's politics appear harmless. But we are dealing with violent right-wing extremism because white nationalism has been treated as a legitimate political view. It should be clearly identified as hate. 
obviously people love the narrative of one celebrity coming for another, but I think there's a deeper conversation to be had. You mentioned to me in our pre-interview that you met with Josh Kushner when you were fundraising for Rookie and told me that he was very nice, citing that as the real sinister aspect of all of this. You even called he and Carly neoliberal crooks, which made me spit out my coffee. (laughs) Talk to me about the compromise one has to make and where you draw the line, because One could argue that by taking right-wing money and putting it into your liberal media venture, you're actually disempowering them in a sense. Mm. But it could also be argued that that's dirty money. How do you sort of grapple with with, with this? And, And it sounds like there's a world in which Rookie Mag could have continued on with this dirty money. And you chose not to have that be the case. Right. I don't think it would have been his dirty money, but it could have been, like I said, uh, you know, Republican venture capital investor. They surely exist. I surely met a few of them. Yeah. So let me explain a little bit like that meeting, because I was sort of like, I, I have felt a kind of desire to talk about the fact that I met with him. And then I was like, should I write about it? But it doesn't really warrant that. But I thought it would be interesting to talk about with you. Yeah, when I was fundraising for Rookie, I was meeting with lots of different venture capitalists and angel investors. And he his fund, Thrive, led investments in Patreon, Glossier, Warby Parker, things where I was like, at least with Patreon, I I was like, oh, that's sort of similar to like what we want to do or could see this becoming like a creative community, blah, blah, blah. And I did not feel good (laughs) going to meet with him. I vomited at uh, Lopan Katibian beforehand because, and also I was really nervous. Like all of those meetings were, made me really nervous because I was trying to like speak a language of an industry that I was not uh, comfortable in. Yeah, as I said in uh, our pre-interview, he was very nice. He was nicer than some of the, you know, non-Trump complicit investors we met with. In the immortal words of Stephen Sondheim, nice is different than good. But I have been thinking about it more recently because with Carly's, you know, little dilemma, which would not be a dilemma if you really opposed Ivanka and Jared's politics. The kind of arguments I was seeing online in defense of her were people going like, but she has a girls coding organization, but she posts about progressive causes. And I think it stuff like that makes me feel kind of nuts. And when I see that stuff, I want to be like, I I want you to know that a lot of really wealthy people with political power have nonprofits or give lots of money to causes or do a lot of philanthropy or post about stuff on social media. And it benefits them too. And it's not the same as like charity and philanthropy are not the same as challenging the systems that benefit you. To take it even further, like Right now, I'm very passionate about the Invest in Our New York Act, which is six bills that would impose taxes on corporations, the financial sector, and billionaires. And I've talked to some people who are billionaires or multimillionaires to 
know how they feel about it and if you know they have any interest in talking about it and i have heard from some people well i prefer to do work with my own foundations i prefer to do my own philanthropy that way i exactly where my money is going the problem is that very very wealthy people deciding to fund the arts and put their names on buildings doesn't get to the root of the problem and also is often a tax break for them. So that is sort of a long-winded way of saying, seeing those arguments in defense of Carly illuminate to me a kind of larger problem in the way people think about what it means to do good. When I met with Josh, I did a similar thing. I was like, well, he gave money to March for Our Lives. He invests in female-founded companies. Looking back, maybe it wouldn't have been unethical to work with him in the sense that, like, I mean, there's so many publication you can't win like wall street journal is owned by rupert murdoch peter Thiel gives a lot of money to n plus one like i don't think purity is the goal but i want to understand these things and talk about them because i think this is the stuff that makes up our world and so many people aren't let into these sort of machinations yeah tell me this much you actually had posted about Carly at one point earlier this summer, I remember, and that also kind of blew up. When you see it blow up, how many of those people do you think are looking at this as just like from the I love drama perspective? And how many are looking at this from the perspective of, do you think that you're really getting, I I actually, I want to, I do think you are getting through to people. I actually think what you do is greater than just the X celebrity came for Y celebrity. I don't think you're doing it with the intent of like as a service, And yet I do think there are people that thanks to your posts will more critically think about these things. If you were to assign a percentage, it's like what percent do you think are here for the drama and what percent are actually here for the lesson? I don't know. It just really pissed me off. (laughs) Um, Every single one was impulsive and not really thought out. Yeah, it just really gets... To me. I know it's not the most important thing in the world, but I was, yeah, it really bothers me. It hits all four quadrants of my rage. I think like Carly's liberalism, but there definitely is an icky thing that happens. Yeah. in the overlap between drama and like, I don't know, politics, like these morality plays that happen online with people with I don't know, name recognition. I I don't know what the ratio is, but it is icky because then there's like a currency attached to being the person who calls people out. Like that's, isn't that like what Diet Prada has built a following on? If you find all this interesting, you should definitely watch the new Gossip Girl, but um, Plug. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me this. I mean, this makes me think about AOC and how she utilizes the quote unquote clapback in really effective ways. I think that 
even though a lot of people saw her most recent when she called out Ted Cruz, they love it. They're here for the drama. I think you can't strictly be here for the drama without getting some form of an education, which I think is one of her many great powers. I think it can be a really powerful tool. Tell me this, have you and Carly offline at all? No, I mean, I've met her a number of times. I recently found an old photo of me interviewing her when I was 13 and she was 16. We've been at like some of the same parties over the years. I don't have any way of contacting her, at least not without like going through someone who would surely be like, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) Couple last questions. Just because you brought it up, what are your thoughts top level about Diet Prada? I feel like I haven't looked at it enough to have a well-formed opinion. I've met them both. They're very nice. I also have not followed a lot of fashion stuff for a really long time. I mean, it does seem like the role of a critic is different than the role of an influencer, but maybe like, but that's something I grapple with too. I'm not like against it. I think as I said, I think it's easy for me to get wrapped up in stories about individuals with individual transgressions. And I don't know if that's the most productive thing for me to get to spend a lot of time on. I want to talk about 300 Ashland because I think it relates to this conversation. For those that don't know, in 2017, you signed a deal with an apartment complex, 300 Ashland, to post sponsored content in exchange for a free rental unit in the building. It's really not that absurd by today's standards, but people were obsessed, notably New York Magazine's The Cut. You ended the deal in 2018, and in 2019, you wrote an essay for The Cut, interestingly, titled, Who Would I Be Without Instagram? An Investigation. The essay talks about the assumptions people make about air quotes, successful people's finances and how neither rookie nor theater, two of your primary vocations are particularly profitable and the ways in which people assume they know people because of Instagram. I'm wondering what the whole experience from signing the deal with 300 Ashland in 2017 to writing the essay in the cut in 2019 taught you. Cause there were so many takeaways from that essay. Yeah, definitely have a lot of thoughts on this. I remember when they reached out to me, I talked about it with friends who were like, you know, that's an easy gig. Um, You should do it. Your lease is almost up. I was paying a lot of money on a rental in the West Village. So I want to be clear. It's not like if I hadn't done this, I wouldn't have been able to survive. Like, It wasn't like I, like I could have afforded to not do it, you know? It was more like my life will be easier if I do do this, but there's no such thing as a free apartment. Mm -hmm. And also I was sort of like, you know, the, it was a very commercial, it's downtown Brooklyn. It's a commercial area. So, I mean, it's really more downtown Brooklyn than Fort Greene. So I don't know, maybe this is me rationalizing it, but I was like, this is a long gentrified neighborhood. Yeah, I I had monthly meetings with them where we talked about what kind of content I had. It started at being like, they wanted like three posts a week. And I just kept 
talking them down because I was like, that's so much and people will hate that. And I think then it was like one a week and then it was maybe like one a month. And I also didn't do it when I was like clearly out of town for months at a time because that would have looked very strange. I mean, I could go into so much detail, but so remind me your question. I guess I'm just wondering what you take away from the whole experience, particularly because as I pointed out with New York Magazine, for instance, there was an obsession that people had with this. And again, it's only 2017, not that long ago, but this was before this was before Instagram had the sponsored content integration. It was just kind of Again, you were a leading figure in terms of both in the blogosphere and in the sponsored content post. And I'm just curious what you take away from it because that Instagram essay, and I wonder if there's any correlation to, and this is mentioned in that essay, the absence that you took from social media for a period afterwards when you were having other people post for you. I -hmm. wonder if that was in any way correlated to the response from people over 300 Ashland. Yes. I was definitely like, Instagram is my job. I don't want to be accessible to anyone who has feedback for me. And using it gives me a lot of anxiety, which I think has to do with, I mean, that goes back farther for sure. You know, we could go all the way back to July, 2008, the cut (laughs) with that one. Yeah, so a woman I had hired for like very, very part-time personal assistant work who was like transcribing stuff for me and kind of other tasks like that. I gave her my password and she would, I would send her my posts and she would actually put them up for me. And then we had like a Google doc where she would alert me to any comments that I'd want to know about. Like if there was maybe good worthwhile criticism by my standards or, you know, a blue check mark sliding in, you know, I guess this is just the way it works with like writing something and publishing it. Like there are already things about the Instagram essay that I feel differently about, or like, I wish I had known how to do more. I I wish I were a better reporter. I wish I had done more reporting in it especially like when I had my meeting with Instagram, I wish I'd been better prepared and better able to go around their PR like obstacle course. But I, you know, I understand why some people were like, okay, I'm out. And I also understand why I did it at the time. So, yeah. I've always wanted to ask you about that. So I'm really, uh, and I also really, I want to implore people to, I know you mentioned you wish you had done more reporting for that essay, but I still think it's an incredibly worthwhile read because I think a lot of people, especially in times like this, with all the doom scrolling that happens, we wonder why we continue to feed the beast that is Instagram. Mm -hmm. And I think that this essay really grapples with that. A couple last questions before we let you go, some easier ones. Can we get an update on Gossip Girl? How is filming going? Uh, we start again in a couple weeks. We've had a long winter break, but we shot a couple in the fall and it was so fun. I mean, it feels shooting during a pandemic is very strange, but it also made me like 
extra excited to get to work and be around people. I can't really say anything about what happens in the show other than that it's a continuation of the Gossip Girl universe. It's the same school, but with all new students. And, you know, Gossip Girl exists in today's internet, which has gotten even crazier. I am so excited by that premise. Were you surprised when you saw the response to some of the promo photos that were put out? Particularly, there's a group shot of the cast on the stairs of the Met and the internet went crazy. I wonder what that was like for you to, cause you're filming all of this in silo and during the pandemic and, and then to kind of get your first taste of the fan response. What was that like? So weird. Like now I'm constantly tagged in things that I have no idea what they are, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> which is the sign of true notoriety. Yeah, I'm just really excited for it to come out because I think it is really smart and will surprise a lot of people. Like I think the 2021 take is really strong. So I'm dying to just know what people think of the show, but it's really also fun to see people freaking out about just like the, the paparazzi photos or just the fact that it's coming back. Yeah, and let me just say, this is a very good-looking cast, speaking of paparazzi photos. I know. Um, quickly wanted to get an Assassin's update. I have to say, Something Just Broke from Assassin's is one of my absolute favorite Sondheim songs. Is there any chance that that revival will resurface post-pandemic? Yeah, they are totally talking about, you know, as soon as theater is happening again, Assassin's will be should be the first show that classic stage does i am going to plug the fundraiser they're doing now because of course for them to come back at all they need a lot of support for their coming back stronger campaign so yeah if you <laughs> want to see assassins then a good way to help that happen is to support the the theater right now if you can absolutely but i'm really really hoping we can do it because it only becomes more and more relevant, unfortunately. Yeah, and that is such a fun part. And I, I think that is like such genius casting. Okay, my very last question. I want to just talk briefly about Sarah Michelle Gellar and just get where your proximity lies to Sarah Michelle Gellar, your favorite Sarah Michelle Gellar cultural contribution. Wow. I watched season one of Buffy in high school. I didn't stick with it. I really liked it but I didn't, it's not my genre. And I've seen Cruel Intentions once, kind of feels like a in the Gossip Girl lineage, but I wish I had like a less generic answer, but I just really liked her on Buffy. That's okay. That, no, you're not missing anything, but I do want to implore you time permitting. I think you need to get into season two to really come away with like a clear, because I'm always like, if you don't like Buffy, fine. But to just watch season one, the show changes so much thematically in season two that I would love to like, if you came at me after season two and we're like, I'm giving up, I'd be like, okay, you know, go forth. I would love if you would push through to season two at some point. It is truly like, to me, like when it starts to fire on all cylinders and the Buffy that like the fandom regales it as being comes through in season two. Anyway. Wow. Okay, yeah. also the fact that you're writing a book about it also really makes me, could you like watch the show and read your book at the same time, a reader? Yeah, you could. I mean, I'm trying to write the book from the perspective of 
the cultural phenomenon of Buffy so that it's not just, it's not a book for Buffy fans necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause one of the things I'm really getting at, and this actually ties into so much of our conversation today, but it's like, I'm asking the cast during the interviews to look back at the show 25 years later and what holds up well and what doesn't. So for instance, I'm doing a whole chapter about Buffy and race. Um, and I'm currently reading this fabulous book called uh, Joss Whedon and race, which is all about analyzing all of his, all of his works, but particularly Buffy, but basically looking at race within the show, looking at the show's feminism or the show's brand of feminism, I should say, looking at all of these things, sexual assault on Buffy the Vampire Slayer is super interesting and talking to the actors about how they felt watching their characters in these situations. So I'm really trying to approach it from the perspective of for the super fans, but also for people that are just interested in cultural touchstones. But also, like, more than anything, it's like, this is a book about putting the necessary respect on Sarah Michelle Gellar's name. I mean, I feel like if if I do nothing else in this life, let it be that. Uh, amazing. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm happy and the book, of course. Wonderful. If you do watch season two at some point, please do let me know your thoughts. Um, I want to thank you so much. I want to implore anyone who is is a fan of yours to go back. I mean, I don't know if you're going to love me recommending this, but really go back and through the annals of your work. There have been some fantastic profiles of you written over the years. And I also am reminded just in, in, in looking at a lot of that early work, I know a lot of people will be like, oh my God, this 13 year old was like writing. It's not just what you were doing. I was really struck with your prose and going back and reading your early work. You are such, I I can't even, I could, but it's just like, it really is a thrill to be in conversation with you, to get your perspective and to see that, that person that I emulated all of those years earlier is worth sticking around and emulating. Cause there's a lot of people that you love when you're younger and then you talk to them or you, you know, you experience them in some form later on in life. And you're like, yikes, you are anything but yikes. Oh, it's still early, but uh, (laughs) 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 that's so nice to hear. Thank you. This has been, I was so looking forward to this and it's been just so enjoyable. Thank you. Shut up, Evan. Shut up, Evan. Uh, What should the third one be? Shut up, Evan. Shut Up Evan is produced by Matt Storm, with associate production by Ryan Killian Kraus, and social media by Sean Ross. An extra special thank you to our Patreon supporters, without whom none of this would be possible. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.